Hello, everyone. My name is Augustin Passan, and you are listening to the Magnolia Tree Podcast, Inspiring Brave Leaders, and I'm joined today by Sridhar Commander. Would you like to introduce yourself, KK? Hi, Augustine. Lovely to be with you on this podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm KK. Just refer to me as KK. That's easy, that's short, that's sweet, hopefully, <laughs> and easy to remember. So I just wanted to say a couple of lines about myself. I spent four decades in uh, two big multinational corporations, both in consumer products, in Unilever and in SC Johnson in Racine, Wisconsin. I've done several senior leadership roles, all of them global, in general management, sales and marketing, driving innovation, mergers and acquisitions, integrations, and so on and so forth. I have lived and worked in three continents, in Asia, in India and China, in Europe, in Holland, Rotterdam, and for the last 21 years, I've been in the U.S. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, uh, I guess maybe just a fun starter question is, what was your favorite place to live in, in the entirety of your career? You know, the world has so many places. It's very hard for me to pick one place, particularly from the point of view of living, uh, I enjoyed my time in India, I enjoyed my time in China, I enjoyed my time in Europe as well as in the US. But if I had to say, um, I would certainly say that uh, US has been the easiest place to settle down mm. um, without much direction, without much support. I think slipping into the system was far easier here right. than it was in Holland. Once you settle in, Holland is a fantastic place, but right. because of the language, there is a bit of a disconnect. You know, they speak Dutch, but then they're very good to the foreigners. As soon as they look at a face like mine, they would switch to English. Right. So that made my learning Dutch extremely difficult. I could never, never learn Dutch because they would always reply to me in English, trying to make me comfortable. No, I can totally relate to that. It's it's so difficult to learn a foreign language because I think that was always um I always say that was the biggest insult I ever got when I was speaking in a, a native language and they would be like, Oh, are you an American? <laughs> and then they yeah. would switch to English for me. And uh it was always so disappointing. But I'm sure So I knew some German. Uh, I knew it. some German, so I thought it'll be very easy for me to pick up Dutch, but then the Dutch pronunciation is very throaty. Oh. Everything okay. comes from the throat, and therefore, you know, if if uh, German sounds a little too right. aggressive and throaty, then you know Dutch is even more. <laughs> so that makes it a bit difficult. Just to complete a bit about myself, so post uh, corporate life, right now I'm an executive coach. I focus on coaching high potentials in organizations. So that's what that's what really I'm interested in. I'm interested in people development. I've always been that way right through my career. And therefore, post-corporate work and normal life, I said, how would I like to spend my time? Right. I would like to spend my time working with people, helping them leverage their potential and helping them succeed and grow in their career. And in the process, grow as an individual person as well. Right. And what, what would you say is your, do you find most fulfilling in the coaching process? What do you like to target or do you have a specific kind of area that really excites you when you talk about coaching? It's about leadership, right? Because I think uh, my if you if you have to ask me what's the segment that I focus on, I focus on high potentials in organizations. Right. In every organization that I'm aware of, they always identify people early 
depending on the promise and the performance to give them more and more responsible jobs, take them to higher levels of responsibility and uh, grow them, grow their career. I'm interested in those people who are trying to make it to the C-suite right. or who are recent entrants to the C-suite. Mm, okay. So that, that, that's the kind of profile that I'm pitching myself at. Yeah, I know. I know we were talking a little bit about that, or that was one of the questions that had come up beforehand. Was for me, who's never kind of gone through that practice or, or kind of that process of of going towards a C suite. What are the characteristics that you look for when you have a high potential? What what kind of gives away a high potential person? And when do you feel like? What are the I guess signifiers that you might have that they're ready for more responsibility? Hmm. That's a very good question. In fact, uh, <clears throat> there are two things that that are very important. Actually, there are several, but I'm just trying to keep it simple <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> instead of instead of trying to go into a long essay on what it is. First of all, whatever job they are assigned in their function, be it marketing or sales or customer management or finance or R and D or product development or supply chain. How good are they in doing the job? You know, which whatever job is being assigned. Right. And when they do the job, are they just doing the job within the boundaries or are they the kind of people who are pushing beyond the boundaries without an external stimulus? Mm. Do they come back and say, hey, this is what you asked me to do, but you know what? I've done a bit more because I think this is going to benefit the organization or the function or whatever. So what does it show you? It shows you two things. The guy knows what he's talking about. He's deeply engrossed in making sure that he turns out a very good work product. But you know what? He's a big learner because when he's trying to do the job that's been assigned to him, he's not being restricted by the definition of the job, but is willing to take a walk outside that area and yeah. come up with value-added items uh, which will benefit the organization. And what he's done in the process is he suddenly told the organization what, you know, you gave me this role, but I've expanded the role. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you can do a lot more than what you think you could do by hiring a headcount. And he or she is demonstrating to you what that value addition beyond the job description is. Right. So that's a very, very critical element on are they getting boxed in? Are they willing to experiment? Are they intrepid? And in, do, in, in so doing, are they willing to learn from their mistakes? Because if you have a supportive boss and a supportive environment, I know from experience that everything that you try cannot succeed. And therefore, right, yeah. you don't have to take a hammer and hammer the guy down. You say, okay, what did you learn? It didn't work, but that's fine. Because, you know, many times you try things in life, in organizations, maybe three out of 10 will work really well but you learn hell of a lot from the seven failures. Yeah. So one of the probes that I would have for the person is, what did you learn? What are you going to do differently if with the benefit of hindsight, you were to do the same task all over again? Right. And the other question that I would ask them is, five years from now, when you look back on this role, what would you regret that you did not think of or do? Yeah. You know, this, these two questions will give you a tremendous amount of insight on whether they are able to reflect on their own 
Are they able to draw some insights from the, from the reflection? Are they learning anything? Because if they have learned something, they may say, I would have done it differently. And if they had done it differently, maybe they would have got a different outcome. Because I'm always reminded of this great quote, insanity is defined as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. No. That's... So that, those would be the things which are task-related. But there's one very important bucket, Augustine, which is about the emotional quotient. Is the person able to manage himself or herself well? Right. Because when you become a leader, if you're very poor at managing yourself, chances are you will not be able to lead in an inspiring way. Right, yeah. And therefore... Emotional quotient is a very, very important ingredient. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, one of the, I, I mean, just from my own personal experience, I know it can be really hard to be constantly reflective and be constantly aware of the mistakes you're making. And it's easy to fall back into the trap of, of you know, insanity, essentially. How do you, because, you know, it, you can't always do that. Do you have any advice on how do you prioritize maybe selecting core things or like, uh, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but what I'm trying to say is how would you select things that are important to change about yourself? How do you recognize something is a big issue versus a smaller issue? And because I would think you have to go about targeting the big issues first. Yeah. You know, there are diff different assessment tools which are available for somebody who's interested in knowing more about himself or herself. Right. You would have heard of the Myers-Briggs yeah. and Absolutely. so on and so <laughs> forth. So every company has a particular uh, favorite that they use. And let's assume that you're working for an organization and this person has been through the assessment. And let's just use Myers-Briggs as an example. Right. And the profile of the person comes out. And it also tells you uh, where are the areas of opportunity and what do you need to do? So that's one assessment tool. The other assessment tool that companies use very often is a 360 degree feedback. Yeah. A 360 feedback, the reason it's called 360 is the boss gives feedback, the peers give feedback, the subordinates give feedback. Right. And the beauty about the 360 is also it also talks about how does the occupant of the job perceive his role? How does the boss perceive this person's role? Where is the gap? So you get a fantastic perspective uh, of how they perceive the job, how this man perceives the job, where is the gap? That's one element. The other element is what do the peers think about him? What do the subordinates think about him? And what does the boss think about him? And what does he think about himself? Right, And then you look at all these variances, the strengths and the opportunities for development are eye-popping. Yeah. And then you think about, hey, you can't work on all of those things. Which is the most important? Right. And which will, which will be the one that will give him the highest impact at work? So with HR and the candidate... Uh, you zero in on that opportunity and the candidate that I'm now using the coaching kind of vocabulary, because if I'm working with somebody to develop the person as a coach, then the client has to be bought into that. Right. So what we typically do is you get the sponsor, which is HR and the immediate manager, the boss, and then you get this person 
and of course the executive coach. The four of us have a conference. We align on the strengths. We align on the opportunity areas. Then we rank order the opportunity areas depending on the organizational goals that this guy is driving. Yeah. So the match actually comes out. And since you can't work on everything, then you align with the other three stakeholders that this is what we are going to target for a coaching. Right. And then we say, hey, how do we measure that we are making progress in the coaching? So you talk about metrics. So that becomes the big picture. Right. And, and then the coaching session begins. Uh, coaching is all about establishing trust and providing that client a space which is psychologically safe. Yeah. The details of the coaching conversation between me and my client, although he is an employee of that company, will never be revealed either to his boss or to HR. Right. Because he's going to tell me or she's going to tell me a number of things that they would otherwise not say in an open forum. Yeah. And why is that so important? That's really important because if they are able to talk freely to somebody who's not judging them, yeah. then you can actually get to the nub of the issue. They will be very vulnerable because they will be expressing their fears. And they know that I'm not going to judge them, but what I'm going to do is to really partner them on this journey and help them reach the destination that they have set for themselves in consultation with the sponsors. Right. So, so that, uh, that, that's how the whole journey begins for them. Right. And so is that when you start your coaching sessions, do you have a go-to, you know, assessment that you like to use when you're kind of figuring out what are areas of strength? Like you mentioned the Myers-Briggs and stuff, but do you, is that what you do? You use Myers-Briggs or do you have your kind of own method of assessment? Yeah. So, you know, uh, there are one of three ways in which one can do. I always ask a client, do you have any data already produced? Right. for what your strengths are, what the opportunities for development are. The tool can be X, Y, or Z. I don't care about the tool. Yeah. But there is something called as an individual development program. In short form, it's called IDP. IDP, okay. The IDP is an acronym that uh, most organizations will have for developing people. IDP is tied to the appraisal, annual appraisal. And coming out of the IDP, you have next steps on what are the areas that this guy wants to really work on so that he can lead much better than he's been able to do in the past. That becomes the goal. Then what I do is, you know, I told you about the four-way conversation between the sponsors and the, can and the client yeah. and myself. So I capture that. And then when I start the coaching conversation, I ask this guy or the lady who I'm coaching, Given this macro objective, what's the one thing that you want to get out of this session? Because it's a series of sessions. Yeah. So think about it like a threaded conversation. So you start with session one and you're not going to conquer the world in session one. But what you're going to do is, I've got my eyes on Milwaukee. I'm sitting in Wilmette. Now, what's the one thing that you I should be doing in the next one hour for me to progress towards Milwaukee? Right. I don't set that. I ask the client. Yeah. And the client will then articulate, this is what they want. Then I ask them, at the end of one hour, when I were to ask you, was this discussion useful? Did you make progress? How would you evaluate it? And they will say, 
this is how I want to evaluate the session. So you've already got the markers for the one hour. Yeah. You know, and this is embedded as part of the big picture that we all signed up for. Yeah. That self-setting goals is a really crucial part of exactly. The so to complete the, the complete the coaching process. So the, let's assume that session one ends. At the end of session one, I will always ask them to self-reflect and tell me what actions are they going to take based on the outcome of our discussions. These are not my actions. I don't set the direction. I don't give them instructions. These are actions that they willfully articulate based on the conversation. Then I ask them, how will you hold yourself accountable? That really means you've got to set smart goals and then live by them. And I will also ask them, how will they tell themselves whether they're making progress against the smart goals? Establish the milestones. So once you give them a framework, you empower them. And what I tell them is in between sessions, if you feel that you need to touch base with me, I'm always available. Ping me in advance. We can have a quick 15-minute conversation, a check-in, whatever, and then uh, get you back on track. No, I, I that you already hit exactly what I was going to say. It sounded very much to me that the coaching session is very much an empowering space. It's an opportunity yes. for them to figure out what are their strengths and weaknesses and, and grow those. Exactly. I don't have, I, I'm not going to push them to do this or that because then it's my agenda. Yeah. A good coach works on the client's agenda, not on their agenda, not on my perception. Right. And would you say that extends to a good boss as well, not only a good coach? See, when you, when you, when you come into a boss role, and uh, I've done that uh, so for so many years, there is a responsibility that the organization places on you. Right. Then let me take the example of my coaching client. He or she has a boss within the organization. Yeah. They are accountable to the boss. Now, when the boss is interacting with them, it is highly task-oriented. It is very goal-oriented. Yeah. And the progress tracking is in terms of a traffic light. Are you familiar with the traffic light uh, uh, you know, no, tracking? I heard that. Oh, you know, let's assume that you've got about a list of seven or eight tasks that you need to do. Okay. Uh, and there are milestones established for that. And there's a review process. So periodically, you go back to your boss and you report to him maybe once a month. On just one sheet of paper, nobody's got the time to read reams of essays and follow up. All you want to know on a dashboard is, here was the task, this was the objective, this was the milestone. If I'm on track, put a green uh, circle. If I'm facing minor problems, put amber. If I'm facing big issues, put red. Yeah. And for the red ones, the boss will then say, what do you need from me? to de-bottleneck the process. For the amber, the conversation will be, what's holding you up? Is there anything that I can do to speed up the process? That's how the boss gets involved. Right. But look at this interaction. The boss's conversation and the vocabulary has to be, what can I do to help you achieve your goal? Yeah. The conversation is not, what can I do? To get to that goal. The boss's job is what can I do to help you get to your goal? Got it. So it's a different, it's a completely, 
I won't say completely different approach, but there is a, a key distinction between coaching and, and being a boss and the way you encourage. Yeah. Good bosses empower the subordinates. They don't do the subordinate's job. Right. They, they teach the subordinate how to do the job, right? Because one of the things of a good boss is somebody who comes to work with them, are they saying to themselves, I'm going to focus on how much better this person has become when he leaves or she leaves my workspace. Hmm. Let's assume that you came to work with me two, for two years. Right. And let's assume that you've got, you've got a set of capabilities when you come in to work. At the end of two years, my commitment to myself is I have to make Augustine grow. Yeah. So he leaves as a much better manager than he was when he came to work with me. Yeah. And that becomes a personal goal, but that is largely dependent on what the manager's philosophy is. Yeah. My, my style of leadership was mostly a coaching style of leadership because I believe that everybody has got good raw material in some areas. Everybody is not yeah. strong in all areas. Yeah. But my job as a leader is to make sure that I leverage the strength rather than worry about what they are not good at. And if I'm managing a team and I've got a pretty good understanding of the profile of the team, I also know who is good at what, who is not so good at something else. But then I will always juxtapose and supplement and complement the capabilities to make sure that my jigsaw puzzle of the team's capabilities <laughs> are whole. And then tap the people who are good at particular sectors and assign them roles and responsibilities. Because when you're leading a team, Mm -hmm. The first thing that a leader has to do, particularly for a high-performance team, is to have a vision. Yeah. And these days, we, we always talk about a purpose. So purpose of a very high order. Let's assume that there is a higher, higher order purpose. Then you come to what is the vision. And a good leader normally would generate a draft vision and socialize it with his team members right. so they can also leave their fingerprints on it. At the end of this kind of alignment session, then we say we've got a shared vision because everybody is then committed to whatever they have said. What's the difference between a purpose and a vision? I'd be interested in hearing what's the distinction yeah. you make between that. Let's assume that uh, I'm always talking about consumer products, right? Because that's what <laughs> well, I did for yeah. 42 years. So let's assume that I want to be the number one in fast-growing consumer product company. Okay. That could be a vision. But my purpose is everything that I do with my consumer product is going to be good for the environment. Uh, okay. And it's going to make a big difference to the people in the world. That's the right. purpose. You see, that is not entirely, yeah. uh, uh, I wouldn't call it really a PL kind of metric, but it is a higher order purpose. It's a, it's a moral purpose almost. Exactly. Because that's the North Star that guides. That's the North Star that builds culture of the company. That's the North Star that attracts talent. Yeah. I worked for SCJ for many years because I love the company's purpose. They said, we want to make the world a better place for everybody. Yeah. That's the higher order purpose. The vision was obviously to be a very fast growing company, very innovative right. company and so on and so forth. But how did the company achieve the purpose? Every day we live the purpose because when we looked at formulations, we said these should never use ingredients which are toxic, which are going to do harm to the environment. Yeah. 
if I need a particular chemical whose chemical properties I need because the cleansing of scrubbing bubbles has to be good, then my R&D team would look at what are the options to do it in a sustainable way. I'm going to replace chemical X by chemical Y, which will do the basic job as well, but the side effects for the environment are not going to be bad. You know, I was running pest control business globally for the company, and we came up with a roach formulation because roach is a big nuisance, particularly in condos, because they go through the drain pipes (laughs) from one apartment to the other. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we came up with a fantastic formulation, which had probably one of the world's best solutions. And when we examined from a, examined it from an environment perspective, what our environmentalists in the team told us is, this does the job of killing the roaches extremely well. But the way it does and the way it goes through the drain pipes, ultimately right. it's not good for the environment. Right. So we need, we need to replace a couple of elements in the formulation, which will not take away the bite of the formula. Yeah but it's got to be environmentally friendly. So my best formulation I could never go to the market with, but I went to the market with a formula which was 90% as good, but it was 300% more environmentally friendly. That's what I mean by living the purpose. Because for my company, going with the first solution was better margin. But going with the solution that we chose because that was in line with the purpose, although it was lower margin, it was a better quality response in tune with the North Star of the company. That's what I mean, living a purpose. And that's the difference between a vision and a purpose. I think that is a huge part. I know the the title card of the Ethical Leadership Podcast, that's, that's something I've heard before and I totally agree with. One of the things I struggle with is I see a lot of companies out there that don't have that moral core, that they focus more on the vision than they do on the purpose. And as an employee, you know, oftentimes it's hard to kind of differentiate between companies before you're kind of in the middle of it, um, whether it's a company that's purpose-driven or that's vision-driven. And do you have any, how do you, when you're selecting clients, because I assume you're, uh, I don't know, have you been approached by companies that have been more of that vision-driven and you have you turned them down? Or how do you kind of suss out or, or figure out which companies or purpose-driven versus vision-driven? So I'm going to answer your question in two parts. Okay. The first part is, if you look at many, many organizations in 2021, many large organizations generally tend to have a purpose. They are purpose-driven. Right. Okay? Right. Uh, you know, even a company like Google or a Facebook or an Adobe, even the tech technology companies, sometimes we think that they're into the business of making money, but all of them are driving for a higher purpose. They want to connect people, you know, they want to be, they want to make sure that knowledge is democratized. All that is purpose. That's what Google is trying to do with the search engine, right? And that's what Facebook is trying to do with the ability to connect people. It's like sending a postcard in the good old days, you know, you send, you drop a card to a friend. Right. Now you don't do that. All you do is an IM or you do a Facebook or you <laughs> say <someone>. whatever. <laughs> so you're connecting people. Now that's yeah. the purpose. Obviously, if you're set up as a business, you've got to have a PL responsibility because businesses only survive if you make profit. Profit yeah. is not a bad thing. 
Yeah. As long as you're making profit in a legitimate way and you're putting back the profits into growing the business, there's nothing wrong with it. That's perfectly fine. So the first first part of the response to your question is many large organizations in 2021 do have a purpose. Right. Even the ones that don't have a purpose are discovering that they need to have a purpose for a very important reason. Yeah. We talk about employee engagement in an organization. When they do climate study within a company, what data shows is companies which have a very well-articulated purpose are able to engage employees very well. But more importantly, they are able to attract talent of people with the right values, which match the company's you know, purpose. And therefore, both parties are very happy. It's a fantastic match. The third reason, Augustine, is you'll be surprised that if you're selling tangible products like yeah. brands, millennial consumers are extremely conscious about what does the brand stand for. Yeah. So if there are sustainable brands, millennial customers will prefer, consumers will prefer those kind of brands. So even if you're a Tide, or even if you're scrubbing bubbles, or even if you are, uh, you know, fantastic or a Windex, you want to make sure that your brand not only delivers the functional benefit of cleaning, but it is also thinking about the world in a much, much bigger way. And how does it state the brand positioning? What does the brand stand for? And if I'm using this brand, what is the psychographic profile image that I'm creating for myself? You know, very simply put, why is BMW popular? Or why do you think Harley Davidson is popular? Because the guy who rides a Harley Davidson or the guy who drives a BMW, there is a psychographic profile of that person. It, yeah. is, it is nothing to do with demographics. It's a question of what is that person like, right? Yeah. So... So brands, so millennial consumers are extremely conscious. If they are using a purpose-driven brand, they feel that they are being more responsible. Right. That's the kind of difference that a purpose-driven organizations make. And that's one of the reasons why most companies do have a purpose these days. Do you, I would be interested to know, what do you think is driving that new desire for purpose among millennials? Like, what do you think? Do you think it's the internet and that interconnectivity that's, pushing companies to be more purpose-driven? It is, it is generally more awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Consumers are becoming more aware. What the right. internet has done is it has democratized information. So nobody has to go through reams of paper to get something. You go to the search engine and then you get your answer pretty quickly. So the amount of information that you have access is the same as what I have or is the same access that a guy in a rural area assuming he's got a, a broadband has. Right. So the consumers actually are all on the same platform in terms of information. Then it's a question of what do you do with the information? And that is where classes of consumers come. There are a bunch of consumers who lack this information. They internalize it and they start to articulate. So when we do consumer research, Right. We hear from the consumers themselves words like, I don't want to use a brand that doesn't think about my health and wellness. I don't want to use a brand that doesn't care about the environment. If I'm an aware consumer, I know that use of detergents per se at a bare level 
is not always very good for the environment. So how can I use an environment-friendly detergent? I cannot right. not wash my clothes. I will yeah. have to wash my clothes. <laughs> so I need the detergent. But can I find a better detergent that's kind to my clothes as well as to the environment? Yeah. And therefore, consumers start to make choices. You know, if you look at Pepsi's uh, purpose, it was all about good for you products. Yeah. So good for you product means they are bothered about health and wellness. Yeah. Tasty for you product, maybe the beverage, but right. good for you product gives them a completely new portfolio of items that the consumers want, right? Yeah. So it, it all. So how does it all start? It's to do with consumer awareness. It's to do with consumer feedback. And there is something called as a changing market trend and a consumer behavior. And insight analysts in consumer product companies, they spend tons of time on following what are the changes in the thinking of consumers? How does it reflect in their behavior and attitudes? What is it that you can pull in into a product development idea and represent to the consumers so it is in line with wherever they want to go? Yeah. That that's how this actually fitment happens. One thing I would be interested in is you mentioned that one of the things you loved about SC Johnson was that they were always incredibly purpose driven. They always wanted to make the world better. Did you see any subtle shifts over time with the way SC Johnson maybe approached the consumer market in response to kind of that shifting mentality of the consumers or maybe the like you said that democratization of information? Did S, that that seems like something that would resonate with SC Johnson and how did that kind of subtly impact culture over time, over the time you were there? See, over the time I was there, even when I joined the company, I knew that it had a purpose, it had a North Star, and therefore the purpose only got uh, even better defined during the number of years that I spent with them. How does the definition, how does the purpose definition come to life? It right. comes to life. Uh, in terms of what kind of ingredients do we use in our formulation? Right. What are the checks and balances that we have in evaluating a formulation to make sure that it is serving the purpose that we have set up for the company? What are the consumer benefits that we can claim? How relevant are these consumer benefits to what consumers are saying in the consumer surveys? Yeah. How relevant are these benefits to giving confidence to the consumers that we understand what you're looking for and therefore we have customized a product especially for you to deliver this benefit. And then we start to look at that's where the business part of it comes. Then you look at the percentage of sales that you're getting from such products which, which have got, if I may say so, from the traditional portfolio you're making changes and how does the new slew of products, how are they contributing to your top line and bottom line? And if you find that it's a growing trend, then you are actually energized to do even more of it because you know that you're in the right direction. Right. And that is exactly how the share of the pie of different product categories in the company actually changes over decades and over time. Yeah. Let me give you an example. When the company was established, 32 years ago or something, the fifth generation of the company is running this, which is amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. The same family out of Racine, Wisconsin. The first product that they came up with was parquet wax for the wood, yeah. wood floors. Right. 
Now, 132 years later, do we have that on our product portfolio? I think we do. Is it a big item in terms of percentage of revenue? No. But why do we have it? Because that's where our humble beginnings were. Right. So we don't want to jettison that. <laughs> but then we moved along. We moved along. We were a one, one category company. We became a two category company. Now we are a five category company. Even in the last five years, we acquired a slew of smaller brands and put them into what we call as a lifestyle portfolio, method cleaning products, for example. Mrs. Myers cleaning products, which you may have seen in groceries. You know, these are all environmentally friendly. And in terms of formulation, hugely different from our traditional formulations 40 years ago. These are formulations of the future. So what I'm trying to tell you is look at the way the portfolio is developing from parquet wax, then on to other categories, and then on to other formulations. And now we are looking at future fit formulations. And the percentage of revenue from future fit formulations is growing. So if you and I had this conversation and if I had any knowledge from the outside of what SCJ is doing 20 years from today, we would actually say, you know what? What was launched between 2015 and 2020 is now 35, 40% of the company revenue. Yeah. You know, that, that's really how portfolios change. And that's how you find a company really lives the purpose by adjusting the product portfolio and formulations to meet the changing consumer needs. Yeah. But if you don't articulate a purpose, you will go in all kinds of directions. The purpose gives you a laser beam focus. That's the direction you want to go. Yeah. That's the kind of product you want to develop. Yeah. And that's what you want to be doing for tomorrow's consumer. Right. Okay. You know, you asked me another question. How do yeah, I choose ahead. companies, right? Now, <clears throat> I work with a selected list of companies. Right. Fortunately for me, my list of four or five companies, all of them are purpose-driven. There are three in consumer products. There is one in uh, B2B industrial construction. And there is one in pharma. So from a basket of five companies, all of them are purpose-driven. So I've, I did not have to reject companies because they don't have a purpose. <laughs> I've got a limited amount of time. I want to yeah. make sure that I coach few clients, but I am a really, really good partner to a few clients rather than have a slew of clients and not give enough quality time. Yeah. So the way my business goes is repeat business from the same clientele rather than trying to expand the client base by a huge lot. Yeah. I guess maybe that's a good point to kind of transition because I know there's something we're, we're using up our time and I want to make sure I ask you about the kind of difference that you experienced between leadership styles as you transitioned around the world. Because I believe you worked in Shanghai, if I remember correctly, you yep. were in India, you were in mm -hmm. the Netherlands and then the U.S. Um, and those are all very different cultures. <laughs> what were some of the big takeaways you had from, from working in so many different environments? The, you know, the takeaway is human beings are the same everywhere. Once you go past the language, once you go past the skin color, once you go past the cultural differences, there is a lot of commonality amongst the human race. What I found was people in organizations, whether in India or in Europe or in America, I mean, I was working with, uh, you know, a decent set of guys, executives yeah. who were well-educated, who were well-aware, who wanted to achieve things in life. So I was blessed. 
no matter where you are, since I was working in organizations, I always found that the group of people that I worked with had a few things in common. Yeah. All of them had a tremendous hunger to grow in a career. Right. They had a tremendous hunger to contribute, value add, and leave their jobs in a, in a high accomplished kind of situation, move on to the next role. So all of them had fire in the belly. That was something that was very, very common. Yeah. Now, what was different culturally is each one comes from a different culture. Therefore, your personalities are shaped by that. And therefore, in managing a multicultural team, uh, it's extremely important to keep a few things in mind. Uh, I'm not going back to the team shared vision because I think that's very, very common. If you have a team, if you have a shared vision, if you have clear goals, if you have roles and responsibilities articulated, if you have ground rules laid out for what the team norms are and you develop metrics and milestones for the team's goals, then you get everybody on the same page. After that, it's about self-awareness. Yeah. How self-aware are you as a leader of the fact that you're leading a multicultural team? Yeah. Do you have respect for diversity? Do you have respect for various cultures? Are you looking for a cookie cutter response to every solution? Right. Or are you willing to live with diverse views and then do the fascinating job of how do you reconcile the views and come to a cohesive approach? Yeah. I used to love doing that. <laughs> uh, do you have an attitude to having an inclusive approach? Yeah. Do you have an open approach? Are you listening? Do you have the patience to understand where people are coming from, particularly when they are coming from different cultures? Are you able to establish trust? Are you able to create interdependability? And some things that you have to remember, like in Asia, in team meetings, I would say it's true in most cultures, but in Asia, it is particularly important that you don't make anybody feel like they've been looked down upon because of what right. they said in the meeting. Because, they, you know, there's something called loss of face in Asia. Yeah. Asians yeah. don't like to lose face in front of others. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely important to be able to recognize some of those cultural differences and be sensitive to it. If necessary, take a break, pull the guy aside, give him a one-on-one -on -one or give her a one-on-one -on -one and they will respond to you extremely well. So be aware of some of those things. Uh, the other thing that one has to be very sensitive about is task versus relationship. Asian culture is about relationship, yeah. whereas Western cultures focus very much on task. I'm not saying, therefore, that in Western cultures, we don't shake, shake hands with team members and we don't try to get to know them. Right, yeah. But in Asia, getting to know people is the first step to forming a team, whereas in Western cultures... They say, what, do I, what, what have I gathered here for? What do you want me to do? How should yeah. I work together? Yeah. That is the first point of discussion. Huh. If you did that in Asia, you can still get the job done, but the team will not be as cohesive and yeah. well-bonded as it would be if you spent a bit of time on building the relationship, understanding right. each other. That's the way trust is built in Asia. So it's extremely important to make sure that there are things which are different. The other thing that's really different is there are countries where communication is viewed in a certain context. Asia, context is very important for what you're saying and what's going on. 
but the context is not that important in the Western culture. Because in the Western culture, you really cut, cut to the chase. Yeah. You're not worried about the fluffy part of it. In Asia, <laughs> it does make a big difference. I mean, the other critical is, difference, Augustine, exactly is hierarchy. Hierarchy. In Asian culture, hierarchy is very important. Yeah. Whereas in the Western culture, hierarchy is not that important. So if you're sensitive to some of these things, then I think the way you articulate, you deal with the team, the way you position your leadership style would be would resonate with them. Yeah. And I think if they see a leader who is culturally sensitive, people can pick up. People are very, very smart. Yeah. <laughs> they make their own judgments. They may have water cooler conversations about the style of leadership. And if I know that in the Western culture, people are very individualistic, whereas in Asian culture, they are a bit more, they worry more about the collectivism. Yeah. Then I think if I can send signals to them that I get it, I understand Asians are a bit more emotional than the Westerners who are a bit more rational and so on and so forth. So a good understanding of this helps you build a very, very good team culture. And the last point I wanted to mention to you, particularly in managing cross-cultures, is what I'm a great fan of a term called Ubuntu, Ubuntu philosophy, which is from Africa. And what the Ubuntu philosophy is, is... It's an African uh, tribe. There was an anthropologist who went to Africa. He got a bunch of uh, young kids from this tribe. He put a basket of fruits under a tree and asked them to stand about 200 yards away. And then he said to them, I'm going to whistle. You will have a running race. The one who runs the fastest and gets to the basket of apples can have all the apples on their own. It's for you. And when this guy blew the whistle... Much to his surprise, the kids never ran individually, but all of them held their hands together and they ran collectively and went and reached right. the right. basket of apples at the same time. So this guy said, I asked you to run a race, but why did you guys join hands together <laughs> and run together? So these guys said to him, we are Ubuntu. I am who I am because of who we all are. Right. So what's the point if one person gets all the apples and the other 19 kids are unhappy? Yeah. They said, we don't believe in it. We want all of us to be happy. So we ran together. All of us got the apples. No. This is a fantastic philosophy for what collaboration is all about. The other thing that inspired me in managing teams is uh, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go farther, go together. This is a very, very powerful African proverb. Yeah. And uh, I always used to keep this in the back of the mind and used my leadership style was very much to say, hey, how do we work as a team? So alignment to a purpose, alignment to a vision, a shared goal, clear roles and responsibilities, milestones for metrics, a very objective evaluation makes the same impact in India, same impact in China, same in Holland, same in America. How would you take someone who's has more of that lone wolf personality? Because you're going to get those people and teams, I think, kind of inevitably. How? What was your approach to trying to get them, bring them more into the fold? My my main approach was always always to articulate, as I told you, go with a draft vision. I would call it a draft vision. I will say this is a straw man. This is the way I, I think about it. Yeah. But I know that there are twenty other guys who are as bright or brighter than me. 
I want your input. I want yeah. you to think. And then give them, you know, leave them in a breakout and then come back to the plenary session after an hour and see what are the best ideas that are coming on for adding value to the draft vision. Yeah. It's amazing. What you come out of that session is a fantastic work product. Yeah. And all of these guys, then you play it back to them saying, hi, guys, you know, this is what we all signed on to. Are you, are you in? Yeah. Everybody is in. Then you say, what are the roles and responsibilities? Give clarity. Yeah. Because, you know, if, you, if you're a goalkeeper, you're a goalkeeper. If you're a quarterback, you're a quarterback. Yeah. Right? So you've got to have clear responsibilities. Each one should know what they should be held accountable for. And then you talk about the interdependability because nobody is operating in a silo. Yeah. And you have to tell them that if you don't deliver this, the next thing in the chain is not going to happen. And that will become the weakest link. And we are all committed to getting to the destination. And then give them a very open discussion on resources required. You know what you're responsible for. Everybody won't get all the resources they need. There's a bit of negotiation. But then you walk out of the meeting saying, okay, you're clear about the goals. You're clear about the direction. You're clear about the metrics. We had a resource discussion. You are accountable. Here are the metrics for your self-audit. Here is the review mechanism, and here will be the traffic light chart. Every two weeks, we will talk about it, have a conference call, right. and de-bottleneck the issues. That's it. If as a leader, they know that they have your back, and you're going to pull all stops to help them succeed, yeah, it'll be a great team. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on <laughs> for today. <laughs> Normally, before we go, I like to ask one fun question just to kind of wind down a little bit um, and then give you some space to to talk about whatever projects you might be working on, whatever information you'd like to share. Maybe if you're working on a book, an article, something like that. Um, But first, if you could please pick a number one to 26 for me. I have a soft corner for the number five. Five. Because my birth date is 14. One plus four is five. This This is actually perfect for this conversation uh, that you got question number five is what sources of culture do you turn to in order to get a perspective on everyday concerns? Oh, it's a wonderful question. I'm going to, it'll be, it'll have a bit of a throwback. So when (laughs) I was in school in India, I was exposed to uh, learnings from all of the religions, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, and so on and so forth. I was always left with uh, the amazing learning that everybody is rooting for the same. Everybody is actually saying the same thing. And therefore, that, that gave me a tremendous healthy respect for all of the religions. And therefore, being born in India, I always resort and fall back on some of the Indian cultural ethos that give you a North Star in life. For me... I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, one of the, I wouldn't call it a holy book. You know, Bible is called a holy book. Well, so uh, let's say as an analogy, there is a book called the Bhagavad Gita, which is uh, teachings of uh, Lord Krishna on a battlefield. It's a conversation between uh, Lord Krishna. He happens to be a charioteer for the warrior called Arjuna. And it is in the middle of a battlefield. 
it's full of life lessons. It is not preaching. It is not about trying to convey some spiritualism in a very indoctrinated way. It's amazing how down-to-earth uh, Bhagavad Gita story is about and what the dialogue is about. Yeah. That influences me quite a bit. Let me give you an example. Otherwise, it may seem very abstract. <laughs> I practice detached attachment. It, it, it's, it sounds like an oxymoron. How can you be attached to somebody, even if it is my son? We've got only one kid. He's a son. Yeah. Uh, how can I be attached to him and yet be detached? Right. What The way that it translates is, once you have given him a very good upbringing with the, with the values that you think our family stands for, and once you know that he understands that, then you give him space for him to be himself yeah. within the broad boundaries of those values. The belief is, my son has understood the importance of those values. How he practices it is not something that I'm going to dictate. Yeah. He will figure it out for himself. But as long as he's got a moral compass that will guide him, I'm okay. And I will watch him from a distance. And I'm not going to micromanage him. I give him space. This I call is I'm deeply attached to my son. I'm always interested in his well-being. But I will not tell him all the time how to do and what to do every minute. Detached attachments. You want him to have autonomy. <laughs> yeah. Empower him. Exactly. Yeah. It goes back to the coaching and yeah, the other right. discussion that right we back had. to the beginning. <laughs> yeah. That's why I told you this, this Gita is amazing. There are okay. tons of nuggets of Gita which you can apply at work. I'm going to have to read it because my mom also talks about it all the time. So I'm oh, going to okay. have to check it out. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, KK, to come and speak with me and share all your knowledge with me. Do you have any, in the last moments, do you have anything you'd like to share with our audience about anything you might be working on? Or maybe just share something you think they it's worth their time to go and check out. You know, what... What I'm working on um, is really how to be a great coach. Yeah. You know, uh, you can be a good coach, but there is a big difference between being good and being great. And right now I'm attending some fantastic webinars uh, in order to help me become a great coach. I'm on right. the journey. I can never say I'm a great coach, but I would like to aim for it. Right. Going back to a discussion, that's what I'm shooting for. That's going to be my purpose uh, as far as the coaching is concerned. And I want to get there. It'll take some time. But uh, every day I want to be a better coach than I was the previous day. So that takes a lot of my effort because I have to attend webinars. I have to do some homework. I have right. to submit some papers. Uh, and then I have to work with a peer group, get feedback. So that keeps me really, really busy. I'm not writing a book. If you were thinking, I'm going to tell you around the process. <laughs> When's it coming book. out? Yeah, but I would like to write blogs. I've written a few blogs. I would like oh. to increase my blogs with a focus on uh, self-development. It's about how to tap your own potential, rise in your career. Those are all topics of interest to me. Great. And positive psychology. Positive psychology. Okay. 
Well, I know you shared one of those webinars with me and I checked out part of it. I still have yet to finish it, but I was really impressed by the quality for something that's only got, I think like 130 views. It's, it's unbelievable. The quality, <laughs> like, I felt feel bad that more people really need to see that. So I'll make sure I'll try and make a point of it to include a link to that, um, in the, in this episode, because I think people deserve to see that. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Lovely talking to you, Augustine. Thanks yeah, for taking the time. Yeah, lovely talking to you too. And, Have a wonderful day. Uh, you too. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to the Inspiring Brave Leaders podcast by Magnolia Tree. This is Daliana Eliesch, the editor of the podcast. Feel free to reach us or visit our website for more bursts of inspiration around leadership. You can find a link for our website and our social media platforms in our bio. Thank you for tuning in. Mm-hmm.